Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. James Gray has more than 25 years experience as CEO and director within the digital content industry. In 2012, he started Cortex, and in just five years grew the company to be the UK's leading digital textbook and learning platform for higher education. Cortex is now the leader in digital textbook solutions for universities and publishers and is leading the HE sector's transition to digital learning. Prior to starting Cortex, James was the owner of Coots Information Services, which he sold to Ingram Group, where he became CEO of Ingram Digital, based out of the USA. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. James Gray, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. As always, it's a pleasure to have you on as a guest, and I'm really looking forward to diving into some of the fascinating things that you've done from a career perspective. But as always with astrology, I like to start with the kind of the formative years, the early years, if you like. So tell me, first and foremost, where did you grow up and, and what was childhood like for you? Well, thank you for having me, first of all, and uh, happy to dive through and, and, and have a chat. So I grew up on a farm halfway between Ringwood and Christchurch, so this area all very familiar to me. And childhood was good. As with all of these things, you never quite appreciate them when you're living through it. I always felt one step removed from school because I had to take a bus into school and it was, you know, three quarters of an hour away or whatever it was. But the freedom we had growing up on a farm was just incredible. I mean, I just remember spending hours and hours roaming around with my brothers. I've got two brothers and a sister and we just had hundreds of acres as a backyard. So from that perspective, it was it was it was pretty joyous. And 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 where do you, in, in terms of those two brothers and a sister to which you refer, where do you come in the pecking order? I've got an older brother, then me, a younger brother, and a younger sister. Fantastic. So you, so I guess you would have had a you know, it's almost back to that idyllic sense of childhood of kind of climbing trees and building dens and. Yeah, I mean, driving a tractor at 10 years old, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was it, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> and had, had you ever a sense that I'm jumping ahead a little bit in terms of the sort of the business pursuits that you've enjoyed, but was, was there ever a sense that perhaps farming might have been something that you would have considered? Yeah, I de- definitely considered it. Yeah, I, I, I'm, but from a pretty early age, I was always trying to work out how to make money. Uh, and, you know, I thought of contract farming, buying a tractor and and sort of, you know, uh, instead of man and a van, it was man and a tractor to do anything. So I considered it, but I just was always interested in travel overseas, being in other places as well. So it always felt like a very, very firm anchor. But at the same time, that wasn't where I was always going to be. And, and in terms of those sort of childhood heroes, if you like, the posters that were on the wall or whatever the analogy I might draw. What, who did you sort of, who did you look up to as a child? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, quite a few different people. I think my grandparents were very influential and I loved aeroplanes from a very, very early age. I mean, all my wall 
was plastered in posters of aeroplanes. My favourite aeroplane when I was at school was a Messerschmitt ME262. It was the first jet engine production plane out there that flew right at the end of the war for the Luftwaffe. And my grandfather on my father's side worked for Vickers. And he worked with Barnes-Wallace. And uh, in fact, he designed the undercarriage systems of the Wellington bomber and, and was involved in the Spitfire as well. And so I just... That angle, that engineering, just the precision of it, uh, the dynamics of flight just absolutely fascinated me. And then as a complete contrast, my grandfather on my mother's side, he was born in Zimbabwe. Uh, my mother was born in Kenya. And he became, uh, he studied medicine at Edinburgh University and then became the chief medical officer for British East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania at the time. And then moved uh, in the 50s after the Mau Mau Rebellion, moved to Aden, set up the hospital system there, got his OBE from the Queen in 1957. And I just, he, he retired down in Weymouth and had a nice house on the clifftop overlooking Weymouth Bay. And I just remember going to the house. We went there quite frequently, visit the grandparents. And it was just full of these things from all over the world and, you know, pictures and and masks, art, just all of these things. And I just grew up on these stories of, of these places all overseas, allied to my mother, obviously being born in, in Kenya. So uh, they were very influential in, in, you know, definitely. And and then I just think it was broadly people designing and building things. I just, just like that. And And so when did you first start to show an interest in business? You hear of, you know, classic sort of entrepreneur stories that, you know, I, I was running the tuck shop at nine years old and, you know, or, or I was buying comics from the local shop and selling them for a tuppence and tape me war, whatever it might, those sort of stories of folklore, if you like, you hear of many an entrepreneur, but was, was there a point at which you mentioned the idea around contracting, you know, the, the, the tractor, man in a tractor, was there a point at which you first recall starting to show an interest in business and what therefore might that have been? Well, I think, first of all, it was it was working on the farm at a very early age. I mean, I was up at the weekends at five o'clock helping milk the cows and getting paid for it. And so, yeah, no, but I I, I bought and sold Kit Kats. So <laughs> I definitely kind of sort of slightly fit that bill. I was just always looking for an angle. It was principally on that sort of buy something, sell it side of things from a pretty early age. So I think... Um, both my parents and my brothers and sisters would would tell you that definitely. And and what do you think? Perhaps growing up on a farm taught you. One of the things that strike me is that work ethic. That to your point around getting up at five and milking cows. You know, a tremendous example of actually of hard work and endeavour from a very early age. But what ought not to make any assumptions. What do you think you learned from that experience of growing up in that kind of environment? I, I think that mixture of you've got a job to do, get on with it. And th these things don't wait. They have to be done. So there's always been that we're here to get something done. Let's get it done. And so cut through the noise and, and just focus on execution of what you need to get sorted, what you need to get done. And, you know, I think that that was pretty much instilled from quite an early age. As I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you, you launched or you started Coots Information Services in the very early 90s, 92, something like that. So yeah. what, was the, what was the intervening period? What was the journey from, from the farm to Coots? 
So uh, after my A-levels, I traveled for a couple of years all over with a friend. We hitchhiked all over Europe, um, worked on a farm in Switzerland. I worked up in Norway, picked grapes in Bordeaux, all over, sailed the boats. Um, I sailed the boat down the coast of Africa, across to the Caribbean, spent a year in the Caribbean um, sailing, sailing boats um, all across the States, up the northeastern seaboard. So traveled for quite a bit. And do you think that that had stemmed from, you mentioned your grandfather who'd traveled extensively and those artifacts that perhaps would have fought, mm. that, that sort of wanderlust, if you like. Do you think that that, that, in, that natural interest was instilled in you from, a, from an early age and inspired much of that travel? Yeah, definitely. And, and then these things take on a life of their own and you're in one place and somebody says, let's go to the next place. And great, sounds like a good idea. So, so yeah, definitely. And o- o- always just had that desire to, to travel and be overseas and yeah, it just kept going, just kept going. And then when I came back, I then actually went up to London, did all my stock exchange exams. So I worked in the city for a bit. I was a registered uh, rep of the stock exchange. And then after there was a, the, the, the crash in 1987. And then basically a short time after that, unceremoniously turfed out of the city. And I ended up working for this fascinating division of Pitney Bowes. You know, the, 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 the franking machine people, well, they had a division that was basically selling facsimile machines. But these faxes were, were really interesting because it was that they, they had end to end encryption. And I was involved in setting these things up via satellite within Marsat. Yeah, the Saudi Royal Airline fitting it with its first facsimile machines, um, boats sailing all around the world. So it was it was governments. I mean, it was secure uh, fax transmission. That was just really interesting. And then uh, I got approached and ended up working for uh, HP, one of HP's VARs, and selling systems back into into finance houses and anyone else. And that was just fascinating. I mean, I basically did a two-year training course on everything there was to know about not just the technical aspects, but but selling, presentation, um, marketing, just, I mean, they were fantastic. I mean, that was literally a two-year training program. And then coming out of that, my, my, my father actually had the original idea. Um, he had a love of books. He'd been um, an engineer as well. And he basically just was remarking on the fact that you could buy an electronic component and it would be delivered to your desk the next day. And actually, if you wanted to buy a book, it could take three months to get delivered. And so uh, the whole idea, the whole concept was to basically start an efficient supply service and got started on the business. 91, we formed it as a limited company in 1992 and with my brother, uh, my younger brother, that was. And the business took off. We, we sold a few books. And then all of a sudden, I remember it was uh, Croydon Health Authority suddenly said, well, we'll have that. But can you get hold of this? And can you get hold of that? And we did. Were, they, were these specific types? Were they medical journals? Or- it, it, medical books, reference books, right. etc. And then they just started throwing, I think it was like 5,000 pounds worth a week of orders for books for the health authority and the libraries that they had. And uh, the whole business really started from there. And had they, how had historically those books or those sorts of authorities, how had they sourced them previously? I think they'd tried anywhere and everywhere. Right. I think they'd gone to a bookshop. I think they'd tried to track down the publishers wherever they could. I mean, the, the, the supply chain was incredibly inefficient. Right. 
And we were one of the first to invest in a database of all the books in print on CD-ROM and actually just be able to track down. And then it was being tenacious in terms of, of tracking down the publishers or the author and getting hold of the stuff. So in terms of barriers to entry and, and perhaps therefore the learning, so you, how do you go, you, know, you a lot of blood, sweat and tears, I'd imagine, to get things off the ground, but how did you get from kind of a conversation with your grandfather around, father or grandfather? Father. Father, father with, around books, to then all of a sudden thinking, there's a business in that. Yeah, I think I think it was it was the deployment of technology in workflow. And I always remember we ended up taking over a business that was in Birmingham that was actually a bit bigger than us, but it was in financial trouble. And we walked into the, the place and there was a bank of about 12 or 14 typewriters at desks. And they basically had 14 people typing invoices. And we had one person operating a computer doing all the invoices. And it was just no wonder they're in trouble. They, they cannot compete in terms of just having those inefficiencies in, in how they operate. And I think it was a stark kind of, you've got to keep thinking about driving efficiency. You've got to keep investing in, in technology and process review and process design to keep building efficiencies into what you do. And, and was, there, was the Croydon Health Authority, was that sort of pivotal moment where you thought, actually, do you know what, we're really onto something here. We've got, we've got genuinely an opportunity to grow a scalable organisation. There's a compelling business proposition here. Yeah, that, that then led to an approach out to universities. And effectively, that was the driving source of scaling the business. And uh, we ended up with offices in, in uh, the States, Canada, here, Holland, South Africa, being the biggest suppliers out of the UK to university libraries around the world, from Stanford to Harvard to Hong Kong to Cape Town to Moscow, thousands of universities in you know, 130, 40 different countries. So it, it was then really continuing to evolve that supply service and a whole load of technology components that supported it that really saw the business grow. And and the thing that keeps coming recurring to me in my mind is not quite this, but almost a sort of this is almost a pre Amazon Amazon right? I mean, is it this sense that well, it, it was about the same time yeah, as Amazon. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so we always so we always argue you're a couple of years ahead actually. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. So we always sat there, and I mean, Amazon was focused on an efficient supply chain uh, to the consumer. Mm. And uh, we felt we were doing something similar uh, to service the sort of the B2B market. So companies, libraries, particularly universities. Yeah. And so, yes, it was, it was that. And, and was there a moment at which we started to, you know, I, I reflect back on, you know, we're a similar age group. You know, I, I remember people are often flabbergasted. To, you know, I, I hand wrote my dissertation at university, you know, I'd handed it to my auntie who was a legal secretary so she could type it for me, you know. So I, I, I certainly went into the working world without in my first proper job a PC on my desk, you know. So there's all of a sudden things accelerated, particularly as I recall through the 90s, there was a huge acceleration in digital transformation. And, and probably the sense that we might refer to it as transformation now, when we think of the pace at which things occurred in those days versus today, many people may laugh and think that's not transformation. It's not even digital, but actually a lot of it was dial up and all that, but, but it was hugely transformative. But was there a point at which you thought actually there's a huge 
opportunity. There's a shift to you know the, the the hard copy, the you know the traditional book format, or the way we would digest information would transition to become more digitally delivered. Was there a point at which you thought, hey, that's the direction of travel, and and we need to be jumping on that? Yeah. So I mean, it's a fascinating story. So a hundred percent. We built a system called Oasis, which is still today the, the, the most widely used library acquisition system in the world today. And through that system, we could align content that a university wanted with areas of, of research. We could align it with, with faculty and automate the process of acquisition. So I was remember one of the biggest first users of this system was Stanford University. And, you know, they would they would spend a multi-seven-figure sum, and effectively, we just automated the entire process for them. Whatever was produced in the world from a range of different academic sources on molecular biology, we just sourced it and sent it to them. And effectively, it was then just at the start when journals started to move online, and they were really the first in the UK, there was the Janet Network supporting all the universities in terms of high-speed internet access. And the journal databases were the first to start moving and on articles. And we sat there and said, well, there's this whole whole body of other content that's going to move as well. And so it really became a dawning realization that actually we needed to do something about it. Now, very interestingly, at the, at the same time, there was a company that sort of came out of nowhere called Net Library. And Net Library approached us and they, they had raised, I don't know, $100 million or something in the US and were, were looking to get into the space and wanted to partner. And it, it was really interesting because at the time, the publishers themselves didn't have digital files outside of just their print files. And so Net Library actually had to spend a lot of money working with publishers, digitizing files. But that really was the, the precursor to the whole ebook world and the whole ebook market. And they actually offered us uh, to invest in them at the time. It was, it was, they were, they were going to go for an IPO. And I think the revenues of the company were like $2 million and they put an $800 million valuation on the business. But I was like, Okay, that's quite interesting. We didn't invest, which was quite lucky because then 2001 came and that was the the dot-com crash. So they were in that bubble and boom, just sort of disappeared. But during that time, we kind of really got our heads around what we were going to do. And so we we set up a small uh, company as a subsidiary and then built out technology. Uh, We worked with Greenwich University in the UK on some initial prototypes, which was going to be installed in their server room. And then we kind of reevaluated that and said, no, this has to be cloud-based and basically build it from there. And then in the end, in 2005, I think it was 2005, we launched with Stanford University and the University of Toronto. And effectively, it was then providing the complete service where they could find whatever content they wanted and they could elect to have it in either print format or in digital or indeed in both. And that accelerated very quickly. And, and it, was that the point at which, because you then went through a spell where the 
the Ingram involvement from your perspective, you moved to the US, is that right? Or you, well, they are, so, so Ingram Ingram Industries is one of these massive US companies. Nashville-based, is that Nashville right? Nashville-based, right. but, but across the divisions, $55 billion in revenue at the time. I mean, just enormous. But they were the world, they are the world's biggest wholesaler of, of print books. And they had a really interesting division called Lightning Source, which, would, which had sort of pioneered print-on-demand. So effectively, they were reinventing the supply chain by saying to publishers, you didn't have to create a book and then go and print 10,000 copies and have them sitting in a warehouse waiting to sell. You could create the book and actually we can print it to order. And they plugged it all into the supply chain. So effectively, through a Barnes & Noble bookshop or through Amazon, you could find that book because it was on all the databases, order it. And it would effectively be printed that same day and shipped in an Amazon box and arrive on your door the next day as if it came from Amazon. And you would never know. And effectively, it came from Ingram. But through that business, they had built a, a significant body of digital files. I mean, they had the largest repository of digital files in the world of commercial content. And they approached us in 2005. Um, we had lots of conversations. And effectively, they bought the business in 2006. And I moved across to Nashville with my wife, and I was there for six years, but effectively tasked with setting up a new division for Ingram called Ingram Digital, utilizing some of the capabilities that they had, but effectively becoming a component of the supply chain for ebooks. And it was fascinating. I mean, it was the, the heady days. So uh, we set up Amazon's ebook store prior to their acquisition of Mobi and launching Kindle. We helped Apple with their iBook store and getting content for it. Uh, we did projects with Sony. We did a massive project with Microsoft. We actually set up a 150,000 square foot scanning center, scanning content, digitizing it, indexing it, and making it available through search when they were trying to compete with Google, so on their Windows Live search. So just a whole heap of different things. That Yeah, the, the, the heady days of the ebook industry. What do you think you learned from that that six years that you spent in the US? What what, the, what did you take away from it, I guess? What did you learn from the experience? Oh, just a ton of things. I mean, Ingram is a fascinating company and just the, the sort of the whole long-term planning and trying to skate to where the puck is going. John Ingram, who chaired the business, who I worked with, they spent seven years developing the Lightning Source proposition and never turned a profit in seven years. But that business now is is part of a multi-billion dollar enterprise and is the world leader. And so it, to your earlier point about transformation, these things tend to take much longer than people think they do, but ultimately they become more fundamental. And quite often where the economics change, there's no going back. So that fascinates me where you you can get at the front of a curve and actually you're changing things in a fashion where it's not going back to how it was. And I think we're in that dynamic here. I mean, in terms of the business that we're in now, the learning content, it's all changing and, and it's not going back to print. What do you see as, you know, obviously that we've got shared language with the US, but a multitude of differences. There's probably a whole other podcast in itself, but in terms of how you saw those differences from a business perspective, 
were there some distinct standouts from your perspective that you look back on and you go, that was, you know, was terrific learning, but it was so distinctly different from what I, what I knew to be true from my experience in the UK? I think the US as a market is the largest homogenous market in the world. And if you're going to do something there, you've got to be pretty committed to it. I mean, it is the most competitive and you've just got to really apply yourself because if, if you start making headway, somebody somewhere is going to be coming after you. And so I think just that sort of total commitment, um, right, this is what we're doing and, and we're going for it. And at the same time, really trying to understand how you build structure and how you build an enterprise. I mean, whether you're in a big business or a small business, the principles are pretty similar. Uh, but I think in America, it, it's it's the biggest opportunity, but also where you're going to face the biggest amount of competition. And so it, it is just that total focus and dedication to to what you're doing that I think makes a difference. So tell me about Cortex. So you you, you come back from the US, six years in the US. Yeah. What was what was the inspiration behind Cortex? Well, I think when I was at Ingram, it was it was clear we we looked at that content market in three distinct categories. You had the reading experience, which Kindle really now owns. You then had the the library experience, which is consolidated down in terms of of supply to a couple of players, and that was about finding things. And then effectively, you've got this learning experience, which is about this deep immersive dive into the content. And there isn't a digital market where consolidation or, or aggregation, I should say, at the point of consumption is not the consumer's preferred choice. Kindle, Netflix, iTunes, you name it. That market in the learning content had really been controlled by the top five publishers, Pearson, McGraw-Hill, Wiley, Cengage, Palgrave, Macmillan. And they've all tried to do their own thing on their own platforms. But actually, the market was crying out for an aggregated solution. And I just really felt there was an opportunity there. And it was kind of the last market to be cracked in terms of, right, can you apply technology to the digital content to make the learning experience better and at the same time, aggregate the content that people wanted to study whatever the, they wanted to study. And so it just stood out as an opportunity. And, and in terms of the barriers to realising that opportunity, one of the things that strikes me, and excuse my naivety, but the, I, I would imagine those sort of proprietary platforms, companies, organisations get, can get quite wedded to a, a way of working, but also be that sense of, well, that's almost our IP. That's our, that's what, you know, they'll always assume our platform is better than Joe down the road's platforms. Therefore, it's to try and pull all of that together strikes me in and of itself as no insignificant challenge. So the sort of barriers to entry that you face to get, to get that concept, which sounds certainly when you take into account the Kindle iTunes analogies you draw, so it's perfectly logical, but not without its challenges to realise, I'd imagine. You, you're very, very on the money there. I mean, I've known these publishers for 25 years and I've probably signed more content license agreements than just about anybody on the planet. But actually working with them is challenging and it takes a lot of time. And they also, they, they, they operate globally, but 
in a very localized way. So you might have an agreement with Pearson covering the UK, but that doesn't cover Europe. It doesn't cover South Africa. It doesn't cover Australia and it doesn't cover the Middle East. And, you know, you end up needing to invest. Well, we had to end up investing quite a lot of time and effort in building out those relationships, managing those relationships and working with them on a much broader scale than just a single market. So, yeah, no, it, it's taken a long time. It's taken longer than I thought it was going to take. And, and was, again, there a, a pivotal moment where you thought, again, we've got a genuinely compelling business here. We've got a, this is an opportunity we can, again, there'll be some blood, sweat and tears to realise it, but nonetheless, this, this will work. We want to tender with a university in the UK, Middlesex University, and they've been a standout customer of ours for a number of years now. And I think we probably got a bit carried away at that point because we thought, right, that is the pivotal moment because it, it was a big tender and it's supplying all the learning content to every single student at Middlesex. And you thought, right, well, one's gone they're, they're down this road. They're all going to go. This this is it. As with all of these things, it's it, it takes longer. You're, you're fundamentally changing something. And I would actually say the standout moment, Lee, is, has been covid if ever there was a moment for online learning and access to digital content to support that, this has been the time. I think it was a, it was a great quote from different space, admittedly, but I think it's relevant to anyone on a number of sectors. Harvey Finkelstein, who's Shopify COO, made reference to the retail of 2030 had become the retail of 2020. And I think that's true of many a space that for the longest time, I think many organisations have known that we need to transform, we need to accept the transition to digital. But it's not sort of, you know, it's not quite yet a burning platform. We know it's going to be at some point, but we're not quite yet there. So we can take our time to, th- all of a sudden that whole thing got, not only did it become a you know, a burning platform, and I <laughs> I apologize for the analogy, but it, it was roaring on, you know, it was a roaring flame, wasn't it? It was absolutely a light. So I guess that you've, you've seen that transformation has been accelerated as a consequence of, of what the world has been through over the last 18 months or so. Massively. But but I think the, the interesting part about that is is that it's shone a spotlight on the delivery of education at, in the higher education sector. So at universities in, in particular for, for me and thrown up lots of questions about what is the best model, uh, you know, blended sort of mix of on campus, online, what technologies are deployed to best support that? How do you engage the student more effectively? Just a whole load of questions that I think universities thought they were dealing with, but actually COVID just shone a spotlight on it and said, well, not really. And, you know, recording a two-hour lecture and putting it up on the, the the virtual learning environment and having a student sit there, just listen to somebody drone on for two hours, that is not an inspiring digital experience. What do you see as being the differences between, if you reflect back on the, the early days of Coots versus the early days of Cortex, then you look at the different times in which we find it. What, what are the differences, if you like, from launching those two businesses from your perspective? Or are, they, are the similarities, are they very much the same? So, so there are similarities in terms of continual investment in driving the technology, the platform, the tool sets, the features, the functionality. You, you just, you've got to keep going. But I think one of the big differences is... In the Coots days, you know, we'd win a contract and on every single contract, 
right? Here's a new million dollars worth of business, right? I've got to employ five people in a warehouse to unpack, pack books, ship things. You know, there was there was that physical infrastructure. And yes, it was changing, but the physical component was always there. This is pure digital and the opportunity of how that scales on an international basis is just enormous. I mean, we are serving content into over 200 countries and territories around the world. We've got users literally on in every single country there is. And we, we've got universities in Egypt that are, are spending seven-figure sums supporting their students with learning content and, and uh, digital tool sets to facilitate learning in a way that you would never have thought possible. And so I think it's transformative on a global scale. And we have a very strong, close relationship with Microsoft and all of our platform is architected in the Azure cloud. And literally, we can, we can support one student, 100,000 students, a million students, 10 million students, and almost infinite ability to continue to scale. In terms of, though, the, so the, the mechanism for delivery, the digitization of that mechanism has afforded huge opportunity at a very much more rapid rate, I'd imagine. You can get there a lot quicker. But in terms of how we do business, the thing that struck me is that there is still the human interaction, if you like, still the ability to sign those contracts to to convince someone as to the compelling nature of your proposition still requires of us to spend time, invest, build relationships. That's That bit hasn't, I think there's, there was a sense of some time that technology might take some of that away. But my sense is that, that actually there's still a huge part. That's still a huge part of business. It, it is. But I think the big difference here is that there is seven to eight billion pounds worth of learning content sold around the world. And that has all been in print. And you think of all the myriad of bookshops and, and the supply chain, all of that will change to digital. Yeah. It is a one-way street. I can sell a digital textbook at half the price of any print book anywhere in the world at a click of a button. And that's a one-way street. And as it changes, all of the mechanisms of support that sit behind it start to change in a way where there's no going back. And so it's, while yes, there's the work at the front end, there's, there's, and there's some real heavy lifting, but ultimately that market exists and it's just transforming. I, my sense is that in much the same way as you or I might have studied the Industrial Revolution when we were kids, that this that this period through which I think when you're living through it, it's not always quite so easy to see the pace of change. But nonetheless, I suspect future generations will study this period in much the same way as we might have studied, as I say, the Industrial Revolution, that that technology revolution, Moore's Law and the, the, the pace of processing power and, and all that that entails has just seen this enormous shift. And I think to your point, Direction of travel isn't changing. It's, it's well, I th- only I think, one. I th- you're absolutely right. I think it is comparable. I mean, you think of uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel and you think of, of you know, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, the SS Great Britain, fundamental changes to our ability to connect with people to, for, for transport, all of those things. And then you think of the iPhone in 2007 and a fundamental change. You know, I travel all around the world and there isn't a student anywhere that doesn't now have a phone. I mean, it's it's remarkable. And so you're, you're right, but they do take time to play out. It does take time. 
what are, what are the, we'll come back to cortex, there's a lot of questions I still, I'm really intrigued to understand, but in terms of if we look broadly at the technology space, what initiatives, innovation, ideas, invention, what, what really excites you? What are the things that you uh, look? AI. Right, okay. Uh, the ability, I mean, we have a massive data set on how students engage with content, collaborate, learn, learning patterns, behaviors, styles, and the ability to utilize machine learning, artificial intelligence to, to, to begin to interpret and try and understand this data and support students in a different way is phenomenal. I mean, if we can understand a student studying a specific learning object and we can see they're, they're struggling or the system can see they're struggling, right, well, is there a YouTube video that better explains that concept that you can put in front of that student at the point of study? Yes, right, well, let's do it. And so it's huge. And that, I mean, just the data and the ability to utilize the data to, to help students get through their course, apply their learning, I just fascinates me. And I, I guess that shift in education, if I look at the, the this isn't me damning education in any way, shape or form, but the basic construct of our, of our learning systems were derived around the time of the industrial revolution, which required of basically people to sit in rows, take instruction, deliver that instruction, to go therefore to a factory or whatever it might be, stand in rows, follow a set of rules, deliver, you know, so you, you went through these sort of principles structurally that the systems were aligned. Whereas I think that the way that the world has moved, it strikes me that education is the next part of the equation to try and catch up with the transformation. So these, all these things are not quite yet aligned, but are getting there. So some of that, so leading the forefront of some of that through AI, Cortex would be right at the forefront of, of this sort of transformation in education I think the world needs. And, and I think it's huge. I mean, I see it. Uh, I have an eight-year-old son. And uh, uh, in the past, trying to get him to do his maths homework, I mean, he would rather cut his left hand off than do his maths homework. The school started to utilize a product called Mathletics. I have an 18 and a 19-year-old, but they would have, right. I've seen my two use it in their junior years, for so sure. So game-based maths work. And um I mean, he looks forward to it. I mean, it, it, the, the progression, I mean, I see it in front of my eyes. It's absolutely phenomenal. So there are all sorts of ways to engage students to learn in a different way. And you're right. The, the, the world of work is fundamentally changing too. And education has to change and evolve to keep pace with that. And so, yes, it is. We are going through a transformation. There's no question. Exciting times. I know that you, um, and this is public domain, but you you recently this year secured external investment. I think one of the mm. things that strikes me that many that listen to the Astrology podcast are business owners or considering that route. What advice that that decision to raise capital externally? What what advice might you give to anybody who's who's at that point of thinking? Right, I'm onto something, but I perhaps lack the resource or the capital to, to scale. What, what advice might you give to any entrepreneur thinking of going down that path? Yeah, great question. I think you've just got to be really clear about where you're going with your business and what is the, the application of that capital going to be? What is it going to achieve for you? You've really got to be able to articulate that clearly. 
And then there are a lot of investors out there, but finding an investor who buys into your vision. And the reality is, is investment really comes around supporting a team who can execute on a on a vision and achieve something and scale a business. And so you've you, you got to kind of be really aware of all of those components. You know, you've got to have a really clear idea about your business, the team that you're building to help you achieve your goals, and then align that with potential investors who want to go on that journey with you because it's never without its bumps. And, you know, every investor wants to see a return on their money. So you've got to have your plans really clear and mapped out, but you've got to have the team who can adapt, be flexible, deal with the issues that that arise. And it all comes down to the team. So what does the future look like for Cortex? Well, it's pretty exciting. Mm, um, sounds it. The, the, the business is scaling very, very quickly. And I think that it's continuing to try to be aware of the, the, the pace of change in different markets. Uh, I was talking to a vice chancellor at a university in Ghana, and we're thinking here about digital learning. Well, their execution of a digital learning strategy is to send photos of a page of content via WhatsApp to a student. That is not a good learning experience. And so the market is just not ready for it. And so you've got to be aware that that different markets will operate at different speeds, but it's a fundamental shift. And so, you know, building the team on a global basis to, to be able to align with customers and keep driving in those markets, you know, it's it's that's what it's all about. It's about scaling. And so uh, and being involved. I mean, we, we, we've just we, we've just been involved in, in, a, in a really interesting project. We're helping a, a charity called Girl Rising to basically digitize a curriculum all about uh, the education of, of for, for women and girls in developing countries in terms of, of their place in society and their role and, and et cetera. And, and we can do something on a global basis at next to no cost, I mean, we're doing it for free, to support the education of girls around the world. And I mean, it's just fantastic to be involved in. I mean, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it is exciting. It is exciting and, and truly transformational. So how do you, and you're also, as I understand it, you're also chair of a couple of, a couple of businesses. And yeah, how, yeah. how do you manage to combine CEO of Cortex and all that that would entail. That clearly of itself is a is a very busy day job that keeps you very gainfully employed, yeah. allied with the chair of two very successful organisations as well. How do you, I know there, again, there will be people listening who are thinking about perhaps broadening their portfolio, developing non-exec responsibilities. How do you manage your time? How do you manage that blend of exec and non-exec? It's not easy. It's not easy. And my wife would tell you I probably don't do such a good job of it. But I think it's it's... It's supporting teams. It's people-ly. I mean, people is your business and, and it is about supporting teams, developing teams and, and really trying to ensure that, that the right people are in the right roles and doing the right things, you know, to, to a strategy and to a plan. I'm very fortunate that the management teams of, of the other companies are really strong. And so, you know, I can, I can be heavily involved from a, from a chair perspective, but 
they execute on the day-to-day components that need to get done. And what about then influences on your own career? Is there you know, who have been those those big influences on the on the success and the career path that you've enjoyed? So I would say in the early days of building the Coots business, we had an outside investor, and he was a very very canny Scotsman, <laughs> and. He was really interesting. I mean, real clarity on on driving a P&L, real clarity on scaling, but at the same time, very clear that some things take longer and you have to invest in them. You know, you have to deploy capital to, to build out technology before you can deploy technology to earn a return on it. And I learned a lot from him. I learned a real lot. I mean, he was a cantankerous bugger and very difficult to work with, but I learned a lot from him. Do you think that longer term perspective, one of the things that struck me, if you look at the transition to quarterly reporting, for example, in terms of listed businesses, that that, 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 you know, if I go back to my, you know, 25 years ago, my first kind of job, you know, the the concept of a five or 10 or even 10 year business plan was commonplace. Whereas now we live in a world where kind of quarterly reporting has dictated this sense of what is it that you're doing now that will affect today's result and today's outcome. Longevity has become, to your point around some of the experiences you've enjoyed, that investment with that Ingram had made, for example, in, in terms of the longer term. Those longer term bets, there are plentiful, they're, they're very much in evidence, but the, the, the life cycle in business has become very immediate as it has in life generally, an immediate expectation of results and of outcomes. Has, how have you managed to manage, if you like, that transformation around now and the pace at which we're required to, to move versus you know those longer term bets that are essential to your success. Yeah, it's again, it's not easy. So, so I think it all comes down to uh, there's a number of components in there. So, I, I personally believe some of the short term focus is can be quite destructive. Yeah, and not at all aligned with with the long term longer term aims of a business. And if you remember Amazon. Um, Jeff Bezos refused to turn a profit. Every yes. single cent that the business made was re-plowed back into continuing to scale the business um, because he realized that that you know, his competition at the time was Walmart and he was a fraction of the size. And if he was going to, to if Amazon was going to be the, the, the biggest player in online, he had to have scale. And investors pushed back on that very hard, but he, you know, he got himself into a position where he pushed back and was adamant on what he was trying to achieve. And I think that's a great example of being able to do that in the context of that short-termism. But I think it's very challenging. I mean, Ingram spawned five multi-billion-dollar businesses, and all of it was around being clear on what the proposition was, having a separate team focused on that proposition, and then supporting them in executing on the plan. And it takes time. It takes time. So in the short term, in the business, you've got to be clear on what the objectives are, and you've got to have a strong process of setting objectives for the team in terms of executing on the components that will keep the business moving forward while putting it in a frame of we're investing in this area for the long term. So yes, people are driven hard within the business, 
but you might not be making any profit for a while because we're investing over here to, to maximize on this opportunity. It's a balancing act. It will always be the same, but I think that those businesses with a clear vision of where they want to go end up being the ones who, who succeed for the long term because they, they have a mission. So who do you admire? Well, you can't not admire what, what Bezos has done with Amazon. I mean, that, that's just unbelievable. I, I, I do think the leaders in technology who are seeing the future from a, from a Bill Gates to a Steve Jobs to Elon Musk, I mean, they're, it's pretty phenomenal stuff. But also, also as well, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed with how Satya Nadella at Microsoft has transformed that business I mean, I've been close to Microsoft for many, many years and just seeing how he came from the cloud services side of the business, having a vision and, and seeing where that was going. But what he's been able to do across the entire organization is align everybody in that organization with three or four key metrics. And that's just phenomenal. You know, Azure consumption, uh, Windows devices being sold, activations of Office 365, and now utilization of Microsoft Teams. But as he will point out, he's really the chief culture officer in the business now. And I, I think seeing how that kind of organization can be re-energized, I think is really instructive. And what is it what is it that drives you, James? I just love seeing things done and I love seeing them done well. I just I just love seeing things getting done and and you know and it doesn't matter what somebody does, it's a it's a passion for doing it well and and moving the needle, moving it forward. And and it really, you know, I find inspiration in in people I can walk into a shop and the person behind the till can be inspirational or can be a complete downer. And I come out of a shop with a, with a smile because of that interaction. And I, yeah, that's exactly what, what, how people should be in, in servicing others or whatever it may be. Um, my mother was in a, in a care home and just the, the dedication and quality of care that she was receiving. I mean, I, I just found it inspiring and, I sat there and said, well, you know, there should be different pay grades, not based on the role that you do, but on how you do it. It's a fair point. So, I mean, it, which kind of actually alludes to my next question, which is what does success mean to you? But there's some some interesting insight there in terms of your response. But what, but what does success mean to you? I think it is that. I think success is having passion for what you do and doing it to the best of your ability. I really do. I think it's as simple as that. I think people massively overcomplicate it. And it just is that simple. So what about away from work? How do you unwind and relax? Do you have any of those sailing, as you mentioned, around the, uh, from, from across the Atlantic, all those sorts of good things? Is that, is that part of the, the plan for you at any point soon? Or yeah, do you, yeah, yeah. Do you get so a chance to unwind and relax? Yeah, so, so uh, I, I've had a, a sailboat with a, with a partner for a long, long time. And um, we've, we've sailed all over, sailed all around the, the, the Baltic, the Nordics, up the Norwegian coast, as, as well as everywhere else. So we're really lucky living down here. I mean, this this area we we're we're super fortunate. We're right on the harbour, and you know, so my kids love the water. We're out during the summer. I just wish it was ten degrees warmer 
365 days of the year. So yeah, the the water we love we love our skiing holidays. I mean, we it's it's family stuff. So looking back, what advice might you give twenty one year old James Gray? <laughs> um, just don't listen to the doubters. Don't listen to the doubters. You know, you, you if, if you want to do something, get on with it, and just keep focused on on executing to the best of your ability and and you know i think i've tried to do that and enjoy it enjoy the ride so what does the future look like for you you mentioned there's clearly a huge opportunity for for cortex and i'm sure realizing that is very much front and center of your ambition but in terms of what the future might look like for you what are your thoughts yeah, I, I'm just enjoying spending time with my kids and seeing them grow up. Um, and in fact, that's, I mean, that was one of the interesting things around this, the, the pandemic. I mean, I have definitely decided that I am not an at-home classroom tutor. My admiration for school teachers has uh, <laughs> has gone up leaps and bounds. And it's just ensuring there's the balance between, you know, I, I say I travel a tremendous amount and uh, trying to strike the balance between time at home with them and, and work is, is probably my biggest single juggling act. So continuing to do that and try and keep it in, in check. And for anyone wanting to find out a bit more about Cortex, where would they, where could they go? Where can they find you? What's your URL? Yes. So, uh, www.cortex.com. Um, simple as that. K-O-R-T-E-X-T. Fantastic. James Gray, that's been wonderful, really insightful. Um, it's a great story. It's a really super listen. I've really enjoyed our conversation this morning. I appreciate you taking the time out. I wish you well. I look forward to watching the success that Cortex continues to enjoy and indeed through those other endeavors, um, that the organizations you're involved with continue to flourish. And, uh, I really thank you for your time this morning. Lee, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, James. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.